You're listening to the Rocky Mountain Review for Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. I'm Coda Babcock. And I'm Ellie Shannon. And you're tuned in to KCSU Fort Collins. On today's show, I go over campus and local news with details on an arrest made after a stalking incident in Fort Collins. I go over new updates in COVID-19 statistics and policies, and we hear about She Kills Monsters, a play at the University Center for the Arts. After that, Coda goes over details on the police killing of a 12-year-old boy in Philadelphia. Then we hear from Marie Tanksley with the Mastercast podcast. To conclude today's show, Coda explains some updates on technology with details on smartwatches. Let's move right into campus and local news. On to campus news for Thursday, March 3rd. After breaking news broke Wednesday morning, the mask mandate at Colorado State University has now ended today. The mandate for masks on campus went into effect almost two years ago, after the university shut down in March 2020. Masks will still be required in the Health and Medical Center, the Around the Horn bus shuttles, and in the James L. Voss Veterinary Teaching Hospital. For more information on the lifted mandate, visit collegian.com. The CSU's women's basketball team took on the University of Wyoming last night in their final regular season game. The team lost by just six points, but they will be taking on San Jose State University in the Mountain West Tournament on Sunday, March 6. Make sure to listen to Eliza Drotar's sports updates to hear all about CSU sports. Marshall Fire destroyed much of Boulder County in December of 2021. Hundreds of homes were destroyed in the fire, and Chuck Morris, the director of the CSU Music Business Program, organized the Marshall Fire Benefit Concert on Monday night. Morris is a music manager and concert promoter, according to Allison Sill of The Collegian, and books over 900 shows around Colorado a year. This was Morris's first virtual concert, and more than $700,000 has been raised so far for victims of the fire. Tickets were $10, and first responders, victims of the fire, and sponsors were given free tickets to watch. For more information on the Marshall Fire Benefit Concert, visit biz.source.colostate.edu. Now on to local news. CSU students are rallying in support for Ukraine in Old Town Square tonight at 5 p.m. Austin Hopp, a former police officer for the Loveland Police Department, has pled guilty to assaulting a 73-year-old woman and faces up to eight years in prison. The incident happened in 2020 when Karen Garner, the now 75-year-old who suffers with dementia, walked out of a Walmart with approximately $13 worth of items. Garner's lawyer stated to Isabella Grullon-Paz of the New York Times that Garner suffered a broken bone and dislocated shoulder and was not able to receive medical attention for over six hours. Austin Hopp took a plea deal and pleaded guilty to second-degree assault strangulation, even though there was no evidence of strangulation. The plea helps Hopp avoid the minimum 10 to 32 years in prison if he were convicted in a trial. The second officer who helped Hopp arrest Garner, Daria Jalali, has a disposition hearing scheduled for April 26. In September, Loveland agreed to pay Garner $3 million to settle the lawsuit her and her lawyer put against the city. A former food delivery driver and registered sex offender has been arrested for sexual assault, stalking, and attempting to enter a home, according to a press release from the city of Fort Collins. Cyrus Warren, who is 21, was delivering pizza to a home in Fort Collins in December, and the family's teenage daughter answered the door to him. Warren delivered there again later on December 22nd, and a younger daughter opened the door. Warren asked if parents were home and hugged the young girl, picked her up, then gave her a note offering his contact information about babysitting services. A few weeks later, on February 7th, Warren went to the same house in plain clothes and the young daughter answered again. He asked if her her parents were home and if he could use the bathroom in the home, but the daughter refused and closed and locked the door. Warren knocked several times and a short time later, The teenage daughter saw the door handle moving as if he were trying to enter the home. The family contacted Domino's about the behavior, and Domino's informed the family he had not been working there and had quit several months earlier. In December, Warren also sexually assaulted an adult female acquaintance, and Warren now has charges of stalking, attempted first-degree trespass, 
and sexual assault. Police are concerned that additional victims may exist, and anyone with information is urged to contact Detective Julia Chenoweth at 970-416-2645. The Shambhala Mountain Center, now known as the Drala Mountain Center, is a Buddhist retreat space near the Red Feather Lakes, and the center is filing for bankruptcy. After the Cameron Peak fire, COVID-19, and a 2018 sex scandal, the center filed a voluntary petition in District 10 Bankruptcy Court in Denver under Subchapter V of Chapter 11 of the U.S. Bankruptcy Code, according to Pat Ferrier of the Coloradoan. The center financed $4.1 million in building developments in 2005 with Wells Fargo Bank. In 2015, Wells Fargo consolidated all of the outstanding debt into a single loan through June of 2016. After Drala Mountain Center continued to ask for extensions and reconstruct the loan, and after many donations were given to the center, it still wasn't enough after COVID-19, a sex scandal involving a Buddhist leader there, and Cameron Peak Fire all affected the center reopening. Thanks for listening to my campus and local news updates. Make sure to tune in to the Rocky Mountain Review Tuesdays and Thursdays from 4 to 5 p.m. I'm Ellie Shannon, and you're listening to KCSU on 90.5 FM. (coughs) KCSU presents Poetry Open Mic Night, welcoming poets of all levels of experience to come in and share their work and skill. The event is a great opportunity to hear poetry from young poets around Fort Collins. The event will be held every third Saturday of every month. If you're interested in reading your poetry live on air, visit tinyurl.com slash kcsu poetry. back on the Rocky Mountain Review. If you missed any part of Ellie Shannon's Campus and Local News, check out our podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by searching KCSU News to listen back. I'm Koda Babcock, and these are COVID-19 updates for Thursday. Colorado State University no longer requires masks on its Fort Collins campus, including among employees. CSU reports nearly 9,000 total cases of COVID-19, with two new cases among students and one new case among employees Wednesday. Larimer County reports a low-risk score for community transmission of COVID-19 based on Centers for Disease Control Standards. In the past seven days, just under 4.5% of all tests taken in the county came back positive. Larimer County reports a case rate of 92 cases per 100,000 residents for the past week. New COVID-19 cases fall into the low indicators according to the county's dashboard, with around eight new daily admissions related to COVID-19 this week. Only around 6% of hospital beds are currently being used by COVID-19 patients. The state of Colorado reports 1.3 million total COVID-19 cases and over 12,500 Coloradans died from COVID-19. 4.7 million people received testing in the state and 60,000 total people are hospitalized in Colorado. Nearly 10.3 million vaccine doses were administered in the state so far and over 3.9 million Coloradans are fully immunized against COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control reports 78.9 million total COVID-19 cases in the United States and over 950,000 deaths. Over 81% of eligible Americans are vaccinated against the virus that causes COVID-19, but in Larimer County, that number is closer to 66%. Cases are generally going down across the country. I'm Cuda Babcock, and that's all for Thursday's COVID-19 updates. Information from this segment comes from Colorado State University, Larimer County, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. If you are a student, 
staff member, or faculty member at CSU. Visit covid.colostate.edu to submit vaccine information and get the most recent information on COVID-19 at the university. If you missed any part of today's episode, be sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching KCSU News. You're listening to 90.5 FM KCSU Fort Collins. This is Bryn, and we are here today with a very special guest. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Wesley Longacre. I'm theater faculty at CSU and director of She Kills Monsters. So She Kills Monsters is the current play from the CSU theater department. Can you just start us off by talking a bit about the show? The play kind of centers on two sisters um, and one of the sisters was really big into Dungeons and Dragons and so The play kind of serves as the older sister getting to know the younger through the game. And so it's a really, really kind of amazing mix of fantasy and reality and some really great stuff, you know, for any (laughs) Dungeons and Dragons fans out there. There's so much that's included in the show about D&D, but then also just a lot of heart behind the story and the relationship between the two sisters as well. On that, you're just saying... You know, it's it's a lot about this relationship mm-hmm. and how that's that's kind of the central line throughout the play. Um, I know we couldn't be joined by any actors today, but um, can you talk about kind of working with your two lead actors and their relationship? Yeah, like I said, the story really centers on these two sisters, um, and you find out pretty early that. D&D kind of becomes really one of the main routes that Agnes, our main character, who's played by Abby Allison, uh, one of our main characters, the game becomes a really important route for her to get to know her younger sister Tilly better. Um, Tilly's played by Marin Stumpf. Um, both of those are theater majors at CSU. And you just see, you know, kind of their relationship developed through this game and through the storytelling in in D&D and the characters that are built and the story that Tilly's written. And Agnes, you know, doesn't take it very seriously at first. It's something, it's a world that she doesn't know anything about. Agnes is pretty (laughs) straight-laced and, um, you know, just a very different personality from her sister. And so this game really becomes a very, very significant way for her to get to know her sister better, to get her to know her sister's world quite a bit better. Um, and it's a really amazing journey of, you know, finding out about people that we, you know, may not have much in common with um, and getting to know someone else's world and seeing their experience and um, experiencing the people around them. And just the power of that and the power of kind of that human connection is really, it's really extraordinary. Um, Just, I mean, in general, but also just through the world of this play, I think it's just a really beautiful inlet into how human connection is established and built and how we learn more about, you know, people that we think we know and people that are different from us. Kind of along this journey, we encounter a lot of different characters. Mm -hmm. How many people do you actually have in the cast? Oh, gosh. Um, Great great question. I think we're at about 20 in the cast, so it's a a bigger cast for sure. And so we have a lot of amazing ensemble members who play different characters in both the fantasy world and the real world. We kind of go back and forth throughout the play in between fantasy and reality. And so you've got folks that inhabit both worlds. And then you have characters that you encounter who Tilly, um, the sister who's into D&D, that are based off of real-world counterparts, um, friends that she had, relationships that she has, that uh, she based a lot of her D&D characters on. And so you get kind of both. You get the real-world characters as well as their D&D counterparts throughout. A lot of theater is a lot of staging and a lot of very physical and visual work. So how do you kind of navigate going between these two worlds? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. It was a really, 
really interesting challenge. Um, as a director, for anyone who has worked with me before and knows the types of plays that I've done previously, I'm usually into kind of much smaller character-based pieces that don't have a lot of production elements to it. Um, if you come see the show, which you should, <laughs> um, <laughs> they this is definitely not that. There's a lot of amazing, beautiful production work that's happening on this show. And um, yeah, I mean, just our lighting and sound and design side of our theater department, as always, has done incredible work on this show. And so it was, it was managing um, and, you know, our cast and stage management and everyone really putting together a pretty big show. Um, but it's a, it was an interesting challenge because it's really fully two things happening at once. One is this big production and fantasy and just kind of unbelievable production elements and um, portraying this world that's big and creative and beautiful. And then you've also got this really intimate human story that's being told through the real world characters, through the sisters, as I've mentioned mainly, but then also um, the other students and the other teachers that we encounter. Um, Agnes, the one of the main characters, works at the school that Tilly was a part of, and she's a teacher there. And so there's a real intimate human story that's being told. And so you have this amazing coupling of both of those things, which was an interesting challenge because you've got the ability to kind of go full bore, big, huge production with the D&D world and the fantasy, which is amazing, and then to scale it down to this really intimate storytelling as well. So it was an interesting balance kind of throughout the rehearsal process to hopefully achieve success in both areas, portraying both of those types of worlds. With any production like this, a lot of people go into it, um, and also a lot of time goes into it. When did you start working on this show? Yes, we started about six weeks ago. So we started as soon as we got back for the spring semester. So January 18th, 19th, whenever that was. So about six weeks ago. Right. That's pretty impressive. That's not a ton of time. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a pretty quick turnaround. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yes. And, you know, as <laughs> folks around here know, having a couple of snow days and interruptions and different things, having to call rehearsal early a couple of times because of weather, um, just this time of year can be pretty challenging from that standpoint. We had some challenges thrown our way, um, but yeah, it's really, over, especially over the last couple of days, kind of adding in all of the technical elements to the story. It's really started to come together in amazing ways and all the work that so many people have put into it and so many hours um, that have been put into it um, are really starting to come together. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been a really interesting process. We started out the first couple of weeks was really kind of making sure that we understood the story really well and that we understood the characters as well as possible. And so that's a lot of what you call table work, which means you just sit down, you read through the script and you talk, you discuss who are these people, what's going on, what do they want in these scenes, um, What's the relationship, you know? How do they feel about one another? What's going on in this situation? So finding out just the intricacies of who they are and what they're about and really digging deeply into character so that once we started fight choreography and we started dance choreography and we started, you know, adding in these other production elements, sound and lights and all that kind of stuff, when that stuff starts to get layered in on top of it, if you don't know these characters deeply before that point, then you might risk losing it a little bit. You might risk losing some of the power of the storytelling. And so we really focused in on that the first few weeks and then started to build some of the larger elements to it, like fight choreography and things like that. Um, so it was kind of a step-by-step -step process in that regard. So She Kills Monsters, as we said before, talks about D&D, &D, Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. And with that, there's kind of this element of escapism, which I think is really kind of relevant for the time mm -hmm. that we're living in. What about this show makes it good for the now, makes mm -hmm. it really an important story to tell in this moment? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, such a great question. I think one of the things that's been so fascinating about this process um, for someone who didn't know a ton about Dungeons and Dragons beforehand and, and 
before starting this journey of directing the show um, has just been the amazing expansive nature of it all. Um, we've got, you know, some faculty members uh, in the theater department who were into it kind of at the onset of D&D, you know, in the, in the 90s as it really started to gain popularity and have been really pretty passionately involved and their kids are involved and all sorts of stuff. And then you've got so many of the students that are a part of this production um, have been just as passionate about it. And, and I think right now, you know, in the world that we live in, especially, um, you know, having experienced two years of a pandemic and all of the shutdowns and all of the, you know, regulations and, not seeing people's faces on campus for, you know, coming up on two years because we've been masked and everything. And hopefully coming out of that to some extent, um, I think it's so important that, you know, just that this story really talks about that power of community and that power of human connection. Um, and what you see is just the amazing, beautiful community that can be built and I know, you know, we all find our routes, hopefully, you know, we're able to find our routes towards that and building that human connection. And what you see is the amazing community that's built through things like D&D and just the amazing story. It's, it's such beautiful storytelling and imagination and creativity and just fun, you know? I mean, one of the lines towards the end of the play is Agnes asking Tilly, like, why do you guys play this? And Tilly's just like, because it's awesome, you know, because, because there's so many things about it that are just amazing and awesome and beautiful. And I think that human connection, especially now, as we start to kind of reintegrate with one another and, and rebuild communities that maybe we hadn't seen in, in a long time. And so many of us for so long didn't see family members or friends or whatever. And so I think just that really incredible human connection that's portrayed in this play is so relevant to the here and now for everyone. I I love that response. Mm -hmm. That is fantastic. Okay. I have just one more question yeah. um, just to wrap things up, which is what has been your favorite part of working on this show? I mean, for me as a director, I think it's just being in the room with designers, with stage managers, with actors, um, with students, obviously, and then with also with, you know, amazing faculty and staff that have been a part of this process. One of the things that I really, you know, is so, so valuable to me is that the process is so significant and so important and trying to make the process as enjoyable as possible for everyone involved. Because one of the things I always say is it's like, if we put on the best version of She Kills Monsters <laughs> at the end of this, but haven't enjoyed the process and haven't enjoyed one another in it, then it's not worth it to me, you know? And so, um, so I love the opportunity to tell a story with others To, I mean, I, I, you know, it's no secret <laughs> as a theater director. Um, I just believe in the power of live theater to, to communicate something that I think no other avenue can, that no other form of, of art can. Um, there's just something about the live performance space that it's just alive and electric in a different way. And being able to construct something um, and put something on like this play um, with others. I mean, you just, you build your own little community with every production. And so it's been an interesting challenge in that, like I said, it's, there's just, um, there's a lot to it. If you, if, and when you come see it, you'll see there's a lot of um, just beautiful technical elements to it all. And so it's been this balancing act between, again, those, those two things, the, the bigness of the production, but then also the intimacy and connection of the story, but just being in the room, being in the room uh, with the rehearsal space, building a story together is just always going to be my favorite part of it all. I love that. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. She Kills Monsters will be playing. Your opening night is tomorrow. tomorrow. Yep, tomorrow. <laughs> is February 25th. Um, there are also shows on February 26th. March 3rd, 4th, and 5th at 7.30 p.m., as well as matinees at 2 p.m. on February 26th and March 6th. Tickets are available on the CSU Theater box office website. Well, 
Thank you so much. And I know I personally am really looking forward to seeing the show. I hope our listeners are as well. If you are interested in seeing She Kills Monsters live at CSU, tickets are available at csuartstickets.universitytickets.com. You're listening to 90.5 FM KCSU Fort Collins. vibes. Oh, I got you, BB. You know that college radio is more than just the Coachella lineup, right? It's also like metal and sports and EDM and news and jazz and KCSU, where college radio is more than just college radio. I'm Cutta Babcock with KCSU News, and this is National News for Thursday. The following story discusses the killing of a child by police. This story is about one minute in length. Police shot and killed a 12-year-old Philadelphia boy Tuesday. The Associated Press reports that Thomas Siderio Jr. was killed after a bullet ricocheted off of the passenger door of the vehicle the child was in. After being taken to Penn Presbyterian Medical Center for his injuries, Siderio was pronounced dead according to a police statement released Wednesday. The officers involved in the shooting were out of uniform and driving an unmarked vehicle. They responded as members of a task force and found that the person Siderio was with, an unnamed 17-year-old, was wanted. The 17-year-old was taken into police custody, where police found a handgun and a stolen laser with one bullet in the chamber and five bullets in the clip. Police did not clarify who shot at officers to cause the shooting that killed Cedario. And officers did not explain whether or not the gun recovered from the other young person was related to why they investigated the two. None of the officers were wearing body cameras, and both officers that fired at the youth are on administrative leave during the investigation. Wednesday night, the United States banned Russian aircrafts from entering U.S. airspace. According to David Shaper at National Public Radio, President Joe Biden announced plans for the order during his State of the Union address, and Putin's government is expected to ban all U.S. aircrafts in response. The U.S. Department of Transportation's statement on the order bans, quote, all aircraft owned, certified, operated, registered, chartered, leased, or controlled by, for, or for the benefit of a person who is a citizen of Russia, end quote. As a result of the order, the U.S. can detain pilots of Russian aircrafts. Banning the entry of these aircrafts into U.S. airspace also complicates flights from Russia to the Dominican Republic in Mexico, where a pilot would typically enter the U.S. airspace to get there faster. Now, Russian pilots will have to navigate through international airspace only to arrive in these locations. The House Committee assigned to investigate the events of the January 6th attack at the U.S. Capitol states that former President Donald Trump and several allies engaged in what they call criminal conspiracy. Carolyn Linton from CBS News reports that they did so by attempting to block the certification of the 2020 election by Congress. After months of investigating this case, this is the first criminal charge the committee has said they have evidence for via a court filing. The court filing includes information such as interviews and witnesses from top advisors to the former president and his vice president, Mike Pence. CBS News says the court filing, which happened Wednesday, occurred after attorney John Eastman refused to provide documents to the committee despite only having advised Trump for several weeks, saying that the pair had attorney-client privilege. The committee released a statement which says, quote, The facts we've gathered strongly suggest that Dr. Eastman's emails may show that he helped Donald Trump advance a corrupt scheme to obstruct the counting of electoral college ballots and a conspiracy to impede the transfer of power, end quote. Texas Judge Amy Clark Meacham temporarily ordered a halt to the enforcement of a law that requires the parents of transgender minors to be investigated for child abuse. According to Brad Brooks and Steve Gorman from Reuters, 
The law identifies gender-affirming behaviors, such as allowing transgender youth to access hormone blockers or hormone replacement therapy, as child abuse. Meacham said that the law impacts families through, quote, eminent and ongoing deprivation of their constitutional rights, the potential loss of necessary medical care, and the stigma attached to being the subject of an unfounded child abuse investigation, end quote. After citing constitutional errors in the law, she also cited the case of a transgender girl whose parents work with the department assigned to handle cases of child abuse. The girl's mother was placed on leave from work after the signing of the law, and if charged with child abuse, she would not only lose her position, but be unable to work with children in any capacity. The teen's psychologist could additionally face prosecution under the law, as she did not report the girl or her family to Child Protective Services. Medical and mental health professionals cite that offering gender-affirming treatment to transgender youth prevents suicide and improves quality of life for many. President Biden previously issued a statement on the passing of this law, saying it was a, quote, cynical and dangerous campaign targeting transgender children and their parents, end quote. No other state views the medical treatment of transgender minors as a form of child abuse, and temporarily this law will not be enforced in the state of Texas. I'm Coda Babcock with National News on KCSU Fort Collins. Up next, we're hearing from the Mastercast with Marie Tanksley, so stay tuned. Hey, pod lovers, if you're joining for the first time, welcome. The Mastercast is a podcast recommendation show that consists of seven non-spoiler, binge-worthy reviews of some of the best podcasts in a short and sweet two to three minute summary on everything you can want to know, from the number of hosts to on average how long you can expect each episode to be. For more details and more reviews, I highly recommend checking out the first five episodes. Let's get started. The first recommendation this week is a piece of work. Abby Jacobson knocks it out of the park with this approachable art podcast done for WNYC Studios in partnership with MoMA. Fans of Broad City might recognize Jacobson as one of the show's main characters, whose wit and charm carry over into real life. She's an art major, but it's clear her talented voice was made for radio. One of the best parts of the show is that it's always so refreshing to hear someone speak about something they clearly adore. For most of us, art can seem intimidating, but this funny, down-to-earth pod says art is for everyone. It doesn't matter if you dislike art or work full-time in an art museum. Jacobson makes informative, comprehensive cases for all sorts of it. Her passion for creating a podcast about art that educates while captivates in a way that isn't pretentious is the sort of attitude the subject needs. The show gives an inside look into MoMA with the help of some of Jacobson's friends. She brings them along to gauge their reactions to some of the works she discusses. It's so interesting to hear the different impressions and perspectives. Guests include Hannibal Burris, RuPaul, and Questlove, to name a few. Everything they have to say is useful and adds to the presentation, unlike what I've seen in other shows. I'll admit I was skeptical on how hearing people talk about art would be with just the audio, but this 10-part series is out to prove anyone with the same doubts wrong. While it's completely possible to enjoy the show without viewing the art, a quick Google search gives you so much more to appreciate. For an easy way to make sure you're looking at the right piece, Apple Podcasts has 4.8 out of 5 stars, 1,343 ratings, and 278 written reviews. Episodes were about 20 minutes long, commercials were average for the length, and music was minimal. You can listen to the episodes out of order with only slight nods to guests from older episodes being the only building information. Altel can't generate the most popular for this short series, but my favorites were Samantha Irby gets high on light and how Questlove learned to love silence. No trigger warnings for this one. I'm sure it's obvious by the length of the review that I love this show. It is definitely in the running for my podcast of the year. I would give it a 10 out of 5 stars if I could. Similar pods include the Art History Babes, Art Curious Podcast, The Week in Art, and bonus YouTube recommendation I absolutely love, The Art Assignment. The 
The next recommendation this week is Newton's Law. This brand new eight-part series from iHeart Podcast is the perfect blend of history, true crime, and action. It follows the lesser-known occupation of famous British scientist Isaac Newton as lawman and warden of the Mint. While the position doesn't exist anymore, this podcast makes it feel more current than ever as it brings to life late 17th century culture and customs. For example, did you know that coffee shops were the social media of the day? Lords, ladies were rarely permitted, would print pamphlets to distribute there as well as gather to talk about politics and gossip. It might seem like this time is a world away from us today, but the story told by this show is one we're all familiar with. The Law versus the Criminal. Newton takes the job thinking it'll be cake and give him plenty of time for his other scientific interests. However, he has his work cut out for him, tackling the rampant counterfeiting trend happening and more when he meets William Chaloner, a legend among the underbelly of the country. The two led a relationship filled with cunning back and forth that leads to you wanting to know when Newton will get his man. Apple Podcast has 4.7 stars and 100 ratings. Linda Rodriguez McRobbie is both host and researcher for the show, a dual role she pulls off seamlessly. Episodes are on average 42 minutes long, with the series needing to be listened to in order. Script is narrative, with some short voiceovers by a character playing Newton. Music is a fitting alternative groove by Elise McCoy that I really liked. Similar pods include Blood on the Tracks, The John Lennon Story, American American history tellers and finding Fred. The next recommendation is BBC Earth Podcast. This podcast is nature like only BBC Earth can do it. Who doesn't love to kick back with tea and planet Earth? Well, now you can experience the same feeling of amazement on the go with some of the best storytelling and audio production out there. Started in 2018 and having just finished up its fourth season, it presents close-up encounters and surprising insights into not only nature, but the science and human conditions surrounding it. There's meticulous attention giving to the immersive soundscape with every volume and direction of sound added to put the listener inside the narrative. Apple Podcasts has 5 out of 5 stars, 203 ratings, and 20 written reviews. Solo host Emily Knight guides the show through a set of related stories each week on Mondays, with topics ranging from the bottoms of oceans to the peaks of the highest mountains in the world. The show currently has 35 episodes, all about 30 minutes in length. My favorite episodes have been Can Anything Last Forever and Finding What Doesn't Want to Be Found. Outel's most popular episodes are The Planet Where It Rains Diamonds and Looking Up. No word on when the next season can be expected, but with no final goodbye, it seems that another is coming. The music is so great, I'm going to refer to it as a score. Commercials are average in quantity, perfect for sleep or work. I can't recommend it enough. Similar pods include Discovery, Overheard, and The Life Scientific. The next recommendation is the Miami Chronicles Booby Trap. I found this show from Apostrophe Podcast Network with ACAST really fascinating before I knew why. Now I realize it's because the main narrator, Michael Fragamini, starts out by making it sound like he's your college roommate, recounting his wild childhood, then goes on to sound like it should be a movie, only to end by proving why it's in the true crime category. No wonder he wrote a book. Not only is he a great storyteller, but how the content was edited to unravel itself was masterful. They've made it the first season of a podcast called The Miami Chronicles. All aspects of crime are covered, including backstory, complete timeline, and the possibilities of what the details and motives could have been. You find out all the information in the order Mike does, but in a satisfying eight episodes instead of the 30 years it took for him. All episodes are needed and essential to the story. Could it have been fewer episodes? Honestly, I don't think so. Sure, they might have been able to cram all the information information into fewer episodes, but that wouldn't have done Richard Brush or this fascinating coming-of-age story justice. I didn't mind the episode previews of the show, which is a first for me. Usually I skip through them, but for these, they actually sparked curiosity instead of giving away major spoilers. Big warning here, the music intro is a bit long in the first episode, but skip through it and it's worth it. In episode 4, commercial start, and episode 7 introduces sound effects that help with the story that you don't hear in earlier episodes. I didn't want this slow-burning, sprawling podcast to end. It's actually one of few shows that I would really 
you listen to. Similar pods include Against the Odds, Toxic, the Britney Spears story, and Smokescreen. I am Rama. The next recommendation is Russian for Cats. This is my favorite podcast I've found in a while. It tells the story of a Russian blue cat named Nadia, played by Olga Kachkova, who has escaped the torturous lab where agonizing experiments have given her the ability to talk. Shortly after her breakout, she meets Brian, played by Kyle Teichman, the human who, albeit has his own troubles, becomes Nadia's refuge. Everything about this podcast is great, from the plot to voice actors and all above its subtle way of teaching you Russian. It's so easy to miss because you're captivated with the story, but while Nadia slips in some Russian and teaches Brian, she's actually teaching you too. Each episode is followed up with a recap of vocabulary, learned with a native speaker, and I swear I'm a few episodes away from dreaming in Russian. Narrator Alex Dotti has some amazing company, such as Elena, Faktina, and Heather Henning, as well as some off-the-script help from consultant Jeff Callahan. So far, the show has 18 episodes, all about 17 minutes long and irresistible to binging. The podcast started up in 2019 and released the series finale just a few months ago. Music is very on theme and only present at the beginning of the show. Quite a few swear words, so watch out for small ears while listening. Slight trigger warnings for injury to animals. Similar pods include The Two Princes, Grand Casino, and King Falls AM. The next recommendation is Order 9066. This historical podcast from AMP Reports and the Smithsonian National Museum of American History is about an important part of American history that is rarely talked about in our schools. In February of 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, removing some 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry from their homes on the West Coast and sending them to relocation camps. Facilities and conditions in the camp were inhumane and over crowded. Meals were made up of meager rations and there was no plumbing or cooking equipment of any kind. This podcast looks at the three years the camps were open and the lasting effects of those who lived through it. I had read and knew a little bit about Order 9066, but hearing the voices and first-hand accounts from people who lived through it has such a huge impact. Narrators Sab Shimono and Pat Suzuki were both incarcerated at the Amanche camp in Colorado and curate the accounts of racism as well as how those affected adapted remarkably. The show has 4.8 average stars, 630 ratings, and 81 writ reviews. The powerful history is told at a very personal level throughout the podcast and on the website, which is full of definitions, encyclopedias, and pictures and descriptions of objects that belong to the incarcerated. Eight episodes make up the series with five bonus episodes. All are about 20 minutes long, with each episode telling a different part of the camps. This is a must-listen for anyone interested in history and constitutional rights. The enduring, rippling destruction that immigrant incarceration had, and still has, on the lives of American citizens means our current political climate could really benefit from re-examining this atrocity. Trigger warnings include racism, violence, and inhumane treatment and conditions. Similar pods include Melting the Ice, Indefensible, and The Promise. The last recommendation this week is My Gothic Dissertation. This educational podcast by University of Iowa PhD student Anna M. Williams is an audio form of Williams' dissertation about the problems with how graduate school works and how similar it is to a gothic novel. When I started the podcast, I thought it was going to be like a really long essay of gothic novels, and honestly, I didn't think it was going to be that good. But man, this podcast is full of surprises. Solo host William covers all sorts of points, such as how many graduate students actually actually make it through the program, abuse of systems and people, and a bit of psychology. All of this while relating the suspenseful atmosphere, mysterious traditions, and absolute hierarchy of gothic works, such as Anne Radcliffe and Mary Shelley. The seven-episode series has five out of five stars on Apple Podcasts for a reason, and it aired its last episode just this past August. The script is so well done with several guests, including incredible insight. Music is very creepy, fitting, and well, 
gothic. The host seems to have a voice made for podcasting and only a subtle trigger warning for experiencing harassment. Similar pods include Poetry Unbound, The History of Literature, and How to Proceed. Alright guys, that's all for this week, but remember if you want to see any of the podcasts I've mentioned on the show, be sure to check out the show notes or kcsufm.com. There you can find my sources as well. If you have music you would like to be played on the show or submit a podcast to be recommended, email us at themastercastpodlist at gmail.com. Remember to share the show with the pod lovers in your life and stay tuned next Sunday. This week's music came from Syncopica and Universal Music. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Tom May from the Menzingers, and you're listening to 90.5 KCSU Fort Collins. My name is Eliza Drotar. This is your RMR Sports Report. In women's basketball, the team is now 18-9, and losing their final home game against UNLV, 80-69. Their final regular season game will be against Wyoming. In men's basketball, the team is now 24-4, and winning against Utah State, 55-266. Their final regular season game will be on Saturday against Boise State. Both teams will be heading out to the Mountain West Championship the girls starting on Saturday, the men starting on Wednesday. In women's golf, the girls placed 11th at the show at the Spanish Trial. In men's golf, the team competed in the Prestige Tournament and won 13th place. If you are interested in any CSU sporting event to get student tickets, you can go to csurams.evenue.net to get your student tickets. My name is Eliza Drotart. This has been your RMR Sports Report. And we're back on the Rocky Mountain Review. I'm Kota Babcock, and you're listening to Tech News for Thursday. Ford plans to split its electric and internal combustion car departments into two separate companies. According to Michelle Chapman at the Associated Press, Ford intends to separate the two ends of the company to advance Ford Blue, the electric vehicle end, at a faster rate than what would be possible otherwise. Wednesday, Ford Chief Executive Officer Jim Farley said, quote, we are going all in, creating separate but complementary businesses that give us startup speed and unbridled innovation in Ford Model E together with Ford Blue's industrial know-how, volume, and iconic brands like Bronco that startups can only dream about, end quote. Farley will move to lead the electric division through new advancements as Ford faces competitors like Tesla and General Motors in the electric vehicle industry. Farley also said that the company wants to beat competitors by honoring their roots in innovation and finding unique solutions. Ford is now developing Ford GT, Mustang Mach-E SUV, and the F-150 Lightning pickup with over 150,000 electric vehicle orders for the F-150 Lightning alone. Fitbit recalled around 1.7 million of their watches due to issues with an overheating battery. Joe Hernandez at National Public Radio reports that the Fitbit smartwatches use a lithium battery, and their Fitbit Ionic smartwatch saw issues with the battery overheating to a degree which could burn users. In a statement, Fitbit said, quote, The health and safety of Fitbit users is our highest priority. We are taking this action out of an abundance of caution for our users, end quote. 
Fitbit is accepting returned Fitbit Ionic smartwatches for a full refund and additionally offering discounts to customers who try and replace their watches with another product. Wednesday, the company issued a recall after over 100 customers reported the overheating issue and nearly 60 customers addressed it outside of the U.S. Just under 80 burn injuries happened in the U.S. due to the overheating battery, leading the company to investigate the issue. Fitbit found that it was uncommon for Ionic smartwatches to cause burns prior to recalling devices, but still chose to do so. Fitbit's Ionic smartwatch features the model number FB503 on the wrist-facing side of the device for customers who may be concerned about burn risks. A new study from the Journal of American Medical Informatics Association found that Apple's new atrial fibrillation detection feature for the Apple Watch is unlikely to benefit the majority of users. Nicole Wetzman from The Verge reports the doctors are unable to prescribe medication for the condition based on the small amount of information provided by Apple Watches in most instances. Atrial fibrillation is most commonly diagnosed in older people, and it can increase stroke risk. While Apple Watches can detect signs of atrial fibrillation, study author Josh Pevnik says detection from watches would not change overall outcomes, even as some hospitals, like Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, allow patients to connect health data from their watches to the medical system. The study showed that only a quarter of a percent of all Apple Watch users at Cedars-Sinai would be prescribed treatment for atrial fibrillation based on data recorded by watches. The study showed concern over the issue of who the targeted audience for the service is compared to the watches as a whole, as Apple Watch users typically aren't in the age range most likely to experience atrial fibrillation or other stroke risks. I'm Koda Babcock for KCSU News. You're listening to 90.5 FM and the Rocky Mountain Review. And now for the weather. Today was warm and partly cloudy with a high of 68 and a low of 37. Friday, you can expect a slight drop in temperature to a high of 63 and a low of 35 with partly cloudy skies. Moving into the weekend, Saturday you can expect snow showers with a high of 38 and a low of 20. And Sunday, it will continue snowing but temperatures will drop to a high of 29 and a low of 15. Monday will be partly cloudy with a high of 34 and a low of 13. And Tuesday will start to warm up to a high of 42 with a low of 21. And for Wednesday, you'll have to tune into the next episode of the Rocky Mountain Review on Tuesday from 4 to 5 p.m. on KCSU Fort Collins. I'm Koda Babcock, and information comes from the Weather Channel. And that's all for today. We just wanted to thank Damien Castile for our amazing theme music that's playing right now. We'd like to thank our guests today, as well as Portia Cook, Thomas Taylor, David Demuth, Stevie Jones, Hannah Copeland, Bryn McCall, Jack Balsley, London Shell, Hannah Hitchcock, Elliot Hutchinson, Eric Zhang, Brennan Cole, Bridget Vandell, Eliza Droder, Dylan King, Michelle Ellis, Ben Haney, Ben Kruger, Anna Schwabi, Marie Tanksley, Peter Walk, and the rest of the staff here at KCSU and Rocky Mountain Student Media. We couldn't do this without you. And I'd like to thank you, Coda. And I'd like to thank you, Allie. And we finally couldn't do this without you, dear listener. Thank you. Thank you.